Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast Markets with Sean Hackett. Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida, and he's nice enough to come on and talk about what's happening in the marketplace. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good from from Tallahassee, Florida. Tallahassee. So it's getting... actually in the 40s here. I mean, I'm definitely on the edge oh. of my seat here with the temperature. So Yeah, you know what? You are five degrees warmer than we are. We have a <laughs> so look at that. <laughs> pretty pretty incredible uh it, it, Temperatures kind of like even even kill across the country right now. Pretty unusual. So, yeah, it's uh, but it's nippy been, for 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 Tallahassee. This is pretty chilly. So yeah, we've had a we've had a a, a cooler week than normal here. But now you talked about this earlier. Uh, we, we I asked this question I think back in August or September time frame, and you said you know hey you know December November December are going to be very mild. And yes. uh, as you turn into January, February, you're going to see a, a blast of cold air come through and, and have. Yeah, back, I mean, back in August, when we made our, our, our forecast on a lot of fronts. You know, we said that, you know, we expected the winter to start a little later, you know, late December, but it'd be pretty warm up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and and uh, and that has played out. Yep. And um, but and of course, energy markets have reacted negatively to that um, natural gas and diesel. But mm-hmm. we think there's a, a pretty. We think it's a pretty good opportunity here, right here, right now at this time to lock in some physical energy on this temporary overreaction to the warm start to the North American winter because we think it's going to fire up here as we get into, uh, you know, January, February, March. And, um, you know, we have a, a sudden traffic warming event, something we've talked on your show over, yep. the, over the years that's really firing up. And um, and that's going to be one of the catalysts. Um, to uh, really, you know, kick this uh, this winter off, and 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 the markets are going to have to reprice these energy markets to a more uh, appropriate level. And so, you know, if you're someone that needs propane or diesel or natural gas or or even you know nitrogen based fertilizers, I just think there's a a physical opportunity to get something done here. I think there's a pretty smart place to lock in some economic advantage. So, yeah. Yeah, I've been watching those prices and you know natural gas prices. It's amazing from the high back in COVID to where they're at now and how much they've fallen off. They and call they, they, they call natural gas down. the the number one widowmaker of all markets in, on the planet because of its overreaction on both sides of the aisle. More hedge mm-hmm. funds have gone broke and out of business trading natural gas on the wrong side of the market. It's uh, it's just one of those markets that just it's literally feast or famine. Right now we're in the famine phase, but it's gotten to such an extreme. We're back down to 2020 COVID levels. A physical buyer, this is, a, in my opinion, this is a no-brainer to lock in energy here. This is an absolute no-brainer. So, yeah. There you go, folks. Natural gas it is. Um, all right. So I got one. We got to, let's address the question from the from the listener here first. And um, let me make sure I got the right, the right person's name. And we hit the right, the right button here bring this stuff up um and question so if you have any questions you have for sean you know reach out send it to me and i will i will make sure that i can ask that question uh when we are when we're live here and sean will answer it to the best of his ability sean has a lot of uh different information he's going to ask uh people than than normal and i think that's what the cool thing is about having sean on here is that you're going to get a you're going to get asked the questions that you wouldn't normally um, have a chance to ask. Um, so comments right here. All right, here we go. This is uh, from Hill Country 11. Same question we got last time. So 
another informative interview, wondering what Sean thinks about some reports of magnetic pole shifting and to what extent they or they are or might have on grain production now and in the future, especially in our electromagnetic field is shrinking. Uh, have heard some li- have heard some thinking productions about the 45th parallel will go off production. Thanks. I think there's three things to go over. First of all, there's the concept of the pole shift, meaning right. the north becomes the south, the south becomes the north. That happens. We we looked at that cycle. It happens every one million years. We get a pole shift. Um, we're actually pretty close. We're only a hundred thousand years away from it. Hundred thousand so, years. So plus or minus. What's what's right. that amongst so that, friends, that's right? a big long cycle. So we're not looking at any pole shift anytime soon in our lifetime or anyone else's lifetime for at least another hundred thousand years. Although in in pole shifting time frame, we're pretty close. Right. So let's. So that's the one thing. We're not looking at a pole shift. Now we d- we've talked many many times that when the sun uh, sun's activity goes quiet, it has an impact of having those electric those um. Galactic cosmic rays weaken the magnetic field strength of the Earth, which it has been doing. Um, and when that does happen, it increases the level and the rate of which large volcanic eruptions occur. And other than Tonga, most of them have been highly correlated with sulfur dioxide, aerosols in the stratosphere, and a dramatic cooling effect on Earth's planet. I think to point of the point to your um, your viewers' question, with that means is that the northern tier uh, ag belt that's been able to grow a lot of food here over the last, let's say, 20 to 30 years, because we have been in a warming trend due to warming oceans, you know, are, are going to be coming out of production, meaning we're not going to be able to produce a lot of the, the food and the, and the crops that we're producing there now. We can do maybe some short duration crops, but nothing along the lines that we've been producing. So I do agree that the, that northern Belt ag ground is going to be is going to struggle, and we also also talk about um, the bifurcation that we expect to see with land values, farmland values. The north farmland values, in our view, is go- are going to really crash. Meaning, you know, Canada, you know, northern Europe, that sort of thing. Whereas the your central to southern farmland, is, we think, could enter a bubble phase because people are going to realize that the only ground that can grow food in this new weather regime we're heading into are going to be that that ground. And it's going to take on a greater and greater value for those that have that kind of ground and have access to either good rainfall or, or good you know, underground water rights. So so that's that that's that part of it. Now, there's the, there's the other, the third function of this is that the, um, the north you always say, you know, if you look at a compass, you have magnetic north, right? It's right. not the same yep. as the north, right? Right. Yep. Magnetic north is moving. It's moving at the fastest rate it has in a hundred years or more. It's been, it's really moving rapidly. It's moving towards Europe, and uh, that's a function, by the way, of weak, the weakening magnetic field of the strength of the of the Earth. But the the the, um, the, uh, the impact of that is that as we go through this grand solar cycle, where the magnetic north pole winds up finding itself, meaning it's it's it, it's it's going to move and it's going to it's going to put itself in a spot for a while and sit there. That's where your coldest temperatures are going to lie. That's where your coldest air is going to come from. Um, so what we're doing is we're moving from a a you know uh, the the north magnetic north is moving more towards Europe, and and so so that 
would be the epicenter, your your pit, your your ground zero for where the, the potentially the coldest and most unfavorable weather would be um, as this grand solar cycle minimum uh, continues forward and reaches its trough in global temperatures and weather volatility, according to our work, sometime in the late 2030s to early uh, 2040s. So, so that would be the impact. It doesn't mean it's not going to be crazy, unfavorable here in cold, but it would be most extreme there, Casey. Is that so? The cold weather that we're seeing in in Europe now—they've had a colder start to to their winter than we've had here in North America. Is that part of that? Is that what kind of saying that? Is it just a, a cycle that we're in right now with the the cooling ocean temperatures kind of in the north there that we, that you've talked about on here? Is that driving that? Well, the the, 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 mo- the moving of the north of the magnetic north, it, 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 that's a kind of a, it, it, I don't think you can pinpoint any given year and say, that's why it ha- it, it, it's a, it's a long-term progressive cycle. That's going to mean okay. that when we do get cold weather, it's going to wind up being colder and more unfavorable closer to Europe than it is closer to North America. I can't, what's going on and why we've had this record cold and record snowfall in, um, in Eastern Europe and Russia and now in China, where they're having just incredible cold temperatures is from the stratospheric warming event. That's a okay. different, different deal. Yeah. That's a, that's a different mechanism uh, that has to do with the the amplification of the uh, of the atmosphere, um, and it has to do with lower sunspots. We've talked about how the shrinking of the atmosphere causes a more meridional structure of the of, of the uh, jet stream, causing a deterioration of the polar vortex. It has to do with you know, we have a negative quasi biennial oscillation this particular year, which is high, high stratospheric winds that shift from east to west, west to east every 27 to 32 months. It happens to be going from east to west, which means it's going opposite the jet stream, which helps amplify the jet stream and create greater weakness in, uh, in the polar vortex. So a, a sudden stratospheric warming event is when you get the sudden warming over the North Pole when it's supposed to be cold and it displaces it takes that cold polar vortex and displaces it and disperses it outward. And okay. which it's like a cannon, whichever way it shoots, you get crazy, crazy Arctic air. And that's first shot went into uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, and now it's moving into China. Um, so, so that's the, so, so, so that, that's the first sudden strand for warming effect. We're going to get a stronger event or we're getting a stronger event um, now and into the end of the year. And this is going to create, right now we've had a, uh, if you look at the polar vortex and the globe and the, and the sun struck warming, it's, it's been a, it's distorted like this, kind of like it's been pulled apart. Mm-hmm. What we're going to see is we're going to see a more symmetrical warming, which means that the cold air dispersion isn't going to be like directed in one spot as much. It's going to be more uniform, but it's going to be, it's going to allow much more colder air to come into North America, which up to this point has been getting the warm side of this sudden strike, meaning that the stretching has stretched the warm into the U.S. and the cold into, you know, Europe, Russia, and China. So that that change in the structure of the polar vortex and how that warming is going to take place is one of the mechanisms as to why we are very bullish on or very strong about uh a cold North North American winter coming with a vengeance starting, you know, let's say the transition starting late this year. The other factor is that we are 
rapidly moving into an El Nino Mordecai, something we've also spoken on your show mm-hmm. quite a few times. We're on a borderline reaching that plus 0.5 degrees C in the Central Pacific relative to the East Pacific off the coast of South America. And, um, and his- historically, when you get that upper airflow, uh, that, that uh, temperature differential, it changes your walker cycle significantly and allows the Central Eastern half of North America to, to, to get uh, access to the cold air. Um, and so there's a lot of mechanisms going on here, but all these mechanisms are, are saying to me and saying uh, to us that, um, you know, that, that although it's been you know, warm and, and as we talked about earlier, you know, the winter for North America is not last year. We had one of the coldest Decembers on record and it was a blowtorch the rest of the winter. If you remember this year is exactly opposite blowtorch December cold rested away. So even though the natural gas market, for example, has gotten very, very, depressed that we're seeing very low demand relatively speaking for the month of December when we look when we when we're done with winter and we look at, and we go into April and we look back at total demand for natural gas based upon the heating in North America we're going to see that we're, that our demand is going to be substantially higher than it was last year even though we're starting off comparatively much much warmer so you know that's I think that's the takeaway is people are overreacting thinking that this warm December is going to lead to a warm winter like last year and we 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 are do not agree with that assessment in fact if you look at statistics alone casey if you look at the hot the the top eight warmest decembers we've ever seen since 1950 not a not a a single one of them had a warm winter after that meaning like there's a correlation between a warm start does not lead to a warm winter a cold start oftentimes leads to a cold. These are statistics that we, we utilize in our work that that are it's just numbers. We just run numbers and say this is the trends of how the atmosphere tends to operate. When it pumps too high early, it tends to revert, revert mean the other way. It's just it's just one of those things that Mother Nature just tends to do as an equalizing mechanism. Um, that's that's what that's what Mother Nature does. You know. Yep. yep. A lot of crazy stuff happening right now. I mean, you, you talked about this weather volatility that we would see since the day I met you, and and you, this time frame is where you kind of laid it in there at. And so, we are seeing this 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 thing happen. Um, you know, one last thing on the topic here. We've talked about the Gleisberg cycle on here quite a bit. Uh, last time we recorded, we kind of hit on that a little bit. With things shaping up the way they are, are you still leaning towards that twenty twenty five? time frame to see the, the only way, the only way that I'm going to shift to 24 having a higher a, a much higher probability than I have today is I, I need to we need to get ourselves into let's say late February uh, to see it, how the atmosphere is reacting because okay. we're, the, the, because the El Nino is peaking and it's going to really start to fall but it doesn't matter how quickly El Nino falls it matters how quickly the atmosphere responds the multivariate ENSO just came out I think it was yesterday the day before that's the measure of the five or six variables that actually determine whether we're actually in an El Nino or La Nina. The sea surface temperatures is just one variable. Everyone just thinks because the sea surface temperatures are what they are, we automatically have an El Nino atmospheric response. We don't. But the multivariate tells you that. It is only, you need plus 0.5 on that index to say you have a, a borderline El Nino response in the atmosphere. We're at 0.6 which means the atmosphere yeah. is acting like a borderline weak El Nino, despite the fact that the sea surface temperatures of the Pacific are saying we have a strong El Nino. Well, it doesn't matter what the sea surface temperatures are. 
weather is going to be impacted by what's going up in the atmosphere, not the ocean. The ocean impacts the atmosphere, but there's a lot of mechanisms that go into place and we're not getting an aggressive response in the atmosphere. The Southern Oscillation Index, which is a measure of pressure differentials from the West and the East Pacific that helps to determine whether you, you know, you're getting the right wind flow for El Nino, La Nina, is supposed to be minus 15 or more negative um, we're at positive SOIs and we and we're borderline uh, getting the 30 day and the 90 day moving average moving to, 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 to flat. I mean, that's not a strong El Nino atmospheric response for most of the fall into the, into the fourth quarter, we've had a, what's called a negative global angular momentum. Uh, that's, it, 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 those are stratospheric winds that are determined on whether the atmosphere is moving faster than the earth or the earth is okay. moving faster than the, than the atmosphere. And uh, normally a La Nina has strong negative global angular momentum. A positive global angular momentum is, is, is uh, El Nino. We've, been, we've had a negative global angular momentum for most of the fall into the fourth quarter. That is an, a La Nina <laughs> uh, signature, not an El Nino signature. Another indicator that this El Nino is no is nothing close to what we saw in 2015, 16, or 1997, which were, were super El Ninos. It's not even it's not even in the ballparks. Anyone trying to convince you that this is some massive super El Nino. <laughs> They just, they just don't, they're not, they're not looking at the situation correctly. They're not looking at what's really going on in the atmosphere. In my opinion, they're not, they're not seeing it correctly. And when you really look at the weather we've had around the globe, we have not had your typical El Nino weather in most places. We've had, we've had, we've had spots of El Nino weather, but overall, you know, we, you, you, we just, we're not seeing that classic El Nino signature um, in most places of the, of the world. And, and, and that's, so, so because of that, I guess the reason I'm saying all this, because the atmosphere is borderline El Nino, it's not going to take a lot to get the atmosphere to get back to La Nina. You follow me? We're, yep. we're, we're so like borderline that if we just got a modest you know, weakness back down, I mean, we, we, we could be at minus 0.5 on the MEI. You know, it wouldn't take much to get us into a, a, a La Nina atmospheric response, given that we we really haven't fired it up that much. So, but, but having said that, I want to see that the trajectory is getting there. If I see in February or let's say uh, late February, early March, that the MEI is really rocking and rolling and I can run some correlation studies that show that it's going to trigger an atmospheric La Nina response by the spring, I am going to jack up my probabilities for a Gleisberg cycle for 24 significantly i can't make that claim today because we need we need more information for the next few months to run that that that, that work but but it, it won't take long to figure this out in, in a few months and that and so we'll we'll try to share that on your show as we get clarity on on the prospects for 24 right now what we're going to go with el nino is going to kind of la- hang on and lag on we're going to have sort of a let's say maybe a not too too bad of a of a of a, of a start to the growing season and then La Nina's, we're very confident La Nina's going to kick in no no later than mid-July and create a crazy hot, uh, you know, uh, back half of the growing season, especially central north, meaning central northern plains, central west. You know, if you think about a few years back, you know, when we had the, the severe drought in, in the Dakotas and even yeah. where you are too, 
by the way, Casey, that's to me is where this would likely be set up. Going back into Canada yet again, Canada would be on the wrong. They just can't seem to. They just can't seem to have a, a wet year. It's amazing what's going on in Canada. They just uh, drought it, drought after drought after drought after drought up there. It's just. Um, mm-hmm. I really feel bad for the farmers up there. So. Good news again, Sean. Appreciate it, buddy. Thank you <laughs> so much. All right. Well, whether I predict it or not, it's going to happen one way or the other. So I'm just trying to you know help farmers manage it so they can have a better outcome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we had a. Uh, we had a really wet year last year, so I, I yes. was hoping for maybe one more of those, but it's no, not going to happen, it sounds like. All right. Big news <coughs> coming out of the Fed yesterday. I mean, I, this was the first time where they've hinted to a complete reversal with little or no hesitation in their in their voice. So kept everything the same, didn't change anything, right? Um, there was, after kind of reading through what they talked about a little bit and seeing stuff they there was a hint to not only lowering rates but lowering rates three times next year so when i don't know what that means or what that looks like but we'll see what happens there so a complete reversal on monetary strategy from what we've seen over the last you know couple of years here so sean as you're looking at this the dollar got smacked around pretty good uh because of this news that came out what are your thoughts on what the the fed came out with and then the reaction to the dollar and how that's going to affect our exports I think we have to remember that that the, the Federal Reserve is extremely political. I know they claim they're independent, but it's extremely political. And they screwed up by printing too much money and caused wild inflation. They, made, they just they totally screwed up. Um, so they they so they went on this aggressive campaign. Now everyone's been saying that we were going to have. A hard recession long ago and it hasn't happened. I mean, we're seeing slowdowns in people, but it, it hasn't been a disaster. We haven't seen a stock market crash like everyone's been talking about. Why? I th- understand what the Federal Reserve did back during the Silicon Valley banking crisis, where we had a run on the banks and 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 we had you know remember that banking crisis back in the in the spring of this year of twenty three. They fired up this reverse repo facility where they lend trillions of dollars to the banks um, to keep them afloat, meaning that they, they, they give them these short-term loans so that they have access to capital so that they can keep themselves afloat so they don't go bankrupt, so they don't have more run to bank. It doesn't cause a, a crisis like it did in 08. Um, and so they, they, that's what they did, and that's how they stopped that crisis. They just stopped it. And if you look at when they announced that reverse repo facility, the banking crisis ended the very next day was over, and it has not come back. Right. So, so once they solved that problem, they kept raising interest rates, and they gave the illusion that they're now going out after quantitative tightening. So everyone keeps showing these charts of the of, of the Fed's balance sheet shrinking and how this is going to cause a crash. Um, and normally they would be right. <laughs> okay, but remember right. this is this is this is like Houdini. This is a sleight of hand. Don't look at the left hand, look at the right hand, right? What they're yes. doing is because the banks are now in better shape and they've gotten themselves in a better shape, the banks don't need this reverse repo anymore. So what's happening is, is that the reverse repo money is coming back into the market, creating liquidity as the Fed is reducing its balance sheet. And what's happening is, is that the, the reduction in the reverse repo facilities actually been greater than the quantitative tightening, which means we're actually still getting more liquidity coming into our 
system, even though the balance sheet of the Fed is shrinking. And because of that, we've not had a crash in the economy. We've not had a, not had a crash in stocks. Um, and, um, and, and, but, but they've been able to increase interest rates to hurt end-user demand uh, to get inflation down. So that's, this has been the game that they've tried to orchestrate is keep liquidity going so that we don't have a crash, but gun the interest rates to get inflation down. And quite frankly, it's worked very well. However, $10 trillion of government debt needs to roll from very, very, very cheap interest rates to something higher. There is no way in the world they are going to roll that debt at 5%. It is not going to happen. I don't, and they're going to make up every excuse they can as to how, why they need to bring rates back down so that that debt can roll at a, not zero, Okay, but I mean something right. more moderate so that it doesn't crush the balance sheet and, and create interest payment expense that goes to the roof. So the game is now, We what did they say yesterday? We've won on inflation. We're going back to 2% from right. the summer. Right. Um, the economy is definitely slowing um, and we want to make sure we support it. We're done raising rates and we're, going to, and we're looking at when we should start lowering the rates. The reverse repo facility, if you look at the trajectory of its decline, meaning we're going to run out of that facility by March or April, meaning that that liquidity pump is going to end by March or April. And you know when the Fed funds futures are predicting the first rate cut? March, April. Shocker, huh? <laughs> so the game is they know that once the reverse repo money is over, right? Then you could have a crash. So they know they know this. So they need they got to get the pump prime now. They got to warn everybody well in advance. Now it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and they're gonna and they're gonna find all the kinds of reasons, excuses, and things, and and they're gonna start lowering the rates and they're gonna start printing money and, re, and increasing the Fed's balance sheet to offset the loss of the reverse repo to keep things going. And it's an election year. You cannot have a crashing economy. Politicians are going to kick the Fed chairman out if he lets that happen. He knows it. They know it. It's political. So there is no way in hell they're going to keep rates at 5% higher for longer. It's complete nonsense. They just did that to say that they that they won on beat inflation, that they were strong. They did what they had to do. They, they were the Paul Volkers of our modern society and save face. But it's, it's Houdini. Don't look at the left hand. Look at the right hand. This is what you want to look at over here. And they're very, yeah. very good at it. That's what we see in the dollar, you know, having a very violent reaction yesterday um, is a uh, – and remember, the 10-year interest rates were five over 5% a month ago. They're 4%. We've yeah. had a 1% reduction in the 10-year treasury. The most important interest rate in anywhere is the 10-year interest rate in terms of what it means for loans across the board. 1% decline in one month, that is astounding. There is no way the Federal Reserve is staying at five, five and a half percent with the 10 year at four percent. It's absolutely not a chance. They are going to start lowering rates sooner rather than later, which means the dollar is going to continue to slide and slide and slide and slide. Um, and and you know, we've had a ne very negative bearish outlook on the U.S. dollar uh, for the month, for the year of 24 into 25 for this very reason in a weaker dollar. It doesn't mean everything has to go up 
simultaneously, but a weaker dollar always means overall commodity-led, U.S. dollar-led inflation and commodities that are priced in U.S. dollars. And it means that we get to sell a hell of a lot more stuff to other people. And, if, and when you're looking at grain markets, for example, we're very, very sensitive to that. So a weaker dollar is your friend, and we haven't had it since 2021. And I think it's going to be one of the big stories of 24 is the uh, is the currency-led commodity inflation cycle, which, by the way, which leads inflation a year to a year, you know, over a year. Uh, commodities go up well over a year before you start seeing the headline numbers start to react. It's a leading indicator of inflation. So just because the commodities, let's say, bottom out, let's say, now and start going up, it doesn't mean we're going to see inflation kicking up until probably 25 is when you're going to start seeing the headline numbers going back up again. But the commodities lead that. And what what always gets ahead of the curve? Gold and silver. Gold, last time I checked, gold is just about ready to break out to all-time highs. Silver was up a crazy amount yesterday. Yeah. Uh, big reaction in the monetary metals. They get it. They see yep. it. They know what's coming. They always react first. And we know that the, in the new age of digital, the digital world we live in, we know that the cryptocurrencies, a la Bitcoin, is a monetary digital reserve asset. And it's been taking off substantially in the last couple of months. So your monetary um, markets, your monetary assets, that t- are, their job is to see the inflation first. Way in advance, they're looking at it like a. If, if you had a gun and, you, and you're looking at the scope and you're looking at it and you're seeing, you know, way in the distance, they see it coming. They're they're tipping off what 24 is going to look like later on in the year for commodity-led inflation. So that's where we see it. Obviously, every individual market's got its own set of fundamentals. Mother Nature's involved. There's other factors. Obviously, when it's going to be an election year, there's been all kinds of chaos that's going to create volatility. But for the most part, if, if we have weather volatility, which we which we still which we are which we're going to have, and you have a friendly U.S. dollar negative bear trend, then you know then one has to look at 2024 with a high degree of optimism that we're going to see much better price action to the upside overall than we saw in 23, which was a pretty depressing year for most for many markets. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it was the reversal there was amazing. So, <clears throat> Rich Possum was on here. I had I did a podcast with him earlier this week, and and he was he went from being ultra bearish on gold and in the and the metals to uh, very bullish. And so he's he's flipped there, and 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 so like you've talked about there, you know, you, you're seeing that that evidence happen. I mean, I, I want to profess I'm an ag guy. You know, I I, mm-hmm. I know I'm I'm really good at agriculture and, and prices and. You know, I, I know other things and I follow other things, so I don't want to convey that I'm a, a, a precious metals expert. I am not, but I know enough to know that they they do tend to be a very good leading barometer for commodity-led inflation. And I think Rich Pawson, uh his work, you know, his statistics, his uh, his cycles um, and his body of evidence uh, flipping to a, a, a more friendly environment, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, that, that I think, I think you know, that, that's the right message as well. I think he's on to, onto something there with his work. I love an independent work from a completely different point of view and a different way of coming to it comes to a similar conclusion. He's a really smart guy and I, and I value his work a lot. So, yeah, he is, he is a pretty smart fella. All right. One last thing you put a report out this week um, about some of the stuff you've seen happen in Brazil and how things are shaping up. We are kind of at that critical mass stage now of the growing uh, year for the, this, this batch of soybeans they have down there. Not much has changed, I guess. So Sean, as you're looking at that situation, what are your thoughts there? 
well, about three or four weeks ago, we warned that there, there would be a potential for a, a wetter uh, and cooler end back half of December. And that how that plays played out would be very, for soybeans specifically, for soybeans, would be critical because you could plant soybeans in late December and still have a, have a be okay because it just means you won't plant corn. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, I mean, they can do it. Mm-hmm. They can do it. Um, you're sacrificing corn, but you can do it. Um, so if they get if they get enough rain, then they're gonna then they're gonna replant what they have to replant, and they're gonna finish planting what they weren't plant planting, um, and and then that, so that means that 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 the the prospects for soybean production would would improve if these rain, rains deliver or or provide enough rainfall. Now, of course, they still have to have a good weather in, in January and February. Uh, to produce a you know an okay crop, but it, but at least it would take the um, we didn't get it planted or we're not going to replant off the table. The models, specifically, the Euro model, has been very very hopelessly wet biased. Meaning, it is if you look at a uh, you can look at a correlation chart of what, how what the Euro said two weeks out and what actually happened. It's been so wet by it's probably one of been one of the most wet biased years I've ever seen the euro have, meaning just getting wrong by putting too much rain in the forecast and having that rain not show up. Um, I don't know if that correlation will continue. Um, it, it, you know, no correlation lasts forever. But of course, what's the euro doing is saying all kinds of rains coming again. So we're you know we just have to, and of course the GFS has been too dry, but it's been more right. So I still look at, I'm going to go with the correlations until the correlations don't deliver, right? So right. if I look at, at the, at the year, at the, if, I, if I work the biases and I say what is likely to happen, we're going to get some rain. Um, there's no question we're going to get some rain, but I, I believe based upon the GFS and the euro correlations, it's going to be underwhelming. It doesn't mean that, that, that it won't be beneficial. But I think it's going to be underwhelming, and if it's underwhelming, then I think that this big soybean correction that we've seen of about a dollar, I guess, from the highs from a month ago because of this worry over the rain coming, you know, they might have to put that back on if 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 we get through this period and it doesn't deliver. If it does deliver, you know, then then the soybean crop is is back in the game, although the corn crop is more out of the game. And we've said all along on your show, and we've said in our reports repeatedly, the highest correlation to a hot, dry start um, in Brazil is really on the corn crop production being down substantially. That's where your best bet is. Um, Soybeans, because they grow half in the south, half in the north, and they still can plant the crop late and still produce a good crop, whereas in corn, they can't. Um, Your best bet is still that corn's going to be the one coming up short, but we'll just have to wait. There comes a point, sometimes you just have to wait and see what actually happens. We have two weeks to monitor this rainfall, we'll see if it underwhelms or doesn't. From there, you'll set your soybean trajectory. But actually, from there, you know, either way, the corn production situation looks very, very dire to us. Either way, so right okay, it's a tough spot that we're in right now, especially when you're looking at what could potentially become for the U.S. and our growing cycle, and then you start throwing and uh, commodity inflationary uh, aspects on top of that 24 could have a very uh very spicy um move up i mean you start looking at what you're what you're seeing there we could see some some huge run-ups in in yeah, and, and just remember even though we we depending on how uh, el nino la nina you know, we talked about 
let's just assume El Nino hangs on and, and, you know, and we don't, the, 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 the La Nina hot and dry weather waits until let's say mid July to really kick in. Um, we do have this high, higher probability forecast this year for a first half into mid May hard freeze for a lot of places in the mm-hmm. core growing areas of the Midwest. And, you know, so, so if we have a fall spring, meaning we get this big warm up in April, which we're anticipating, and then we get a hard freeze, you know, it could be very problematic for, especially for corn, because, you know, the, we love to plant corn in this country. We love to get out early and fast and furious. Um, so even though we, we, we may have uh, maybe the drought pattern might wait till the back half of the growing season, a, a hard freeze in May could really alter the planting season dramatically and make it less favorable than it would otherwise be. And obviously we have to pay attention to winter wheat. Exactly where does that cold air focus on? Is it, is it get far enough south? Is it, is it more, you know, it, you know, we'll have to get closer to May to get a better handle on it. But I think that a lot of the winter wheat's going to be in arm's way and a hard freeze in May would not be kind to any winter wheat that would, that would get hit with that. And, and that could be a big, uh, a, a big um, catalyst for a, for a kind of a winter wheat recalibration higher, um, which is something we haven't seen that kind of a setup here for a while. So just something to keep put in the back of your cap, um, you know, just because it's a higher probability forecast, does it mean that it has, it has to happen? Like our frost forecast for Brazil, we made on coffee a few years back that didn't happen for 20, hadn't happened in 26 years. And it turned out that we had a triple frost. I'm just warning that the, that the probabilities based on our work are about as high as you're going to get. So you just need to be on the lookout for how we, as we get closer, if we get the right setup for it. But it's definitely something you need to be thinking about when you're, when you're, when you're. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make with all of this, you know, I wouldn't, try, I don't want, I wouldn't want to plant half my crop in, in April. I think I'd right. want to, you know, spread right. it out, spread yeah. it out. You know, even it out. Don't go too much too early because I think if you happen to be in an area that gets hit with the frost, it's going to be painful. So, yeah. And when that time gets closer, Sean, let's talk a little bit about that, where those areas are, where you think they're going to be at, and we can yeah. start making those plans about yeah. uh, what that looks like. So, okay. I got one thing I want to want to talk about real quick, and it's something else. Hold on just one second. So I like I like whiskey. It's one of my favorite things to do, and I found this whiskey the other day. It's called Rolling Iron, right? So I was like, hey, it's a pretty funny gimmick, right? Moving Iron podcast, Rolling Iron, that's great. Or Running Iron whiskey. So I went out and got a bottle of it, and I drank some. It's probably one of the best whiskeys I've, I've had. So it's, uh, it's, it's in, made out of um, Montana and uh, in Bozeman, Montana at the Dry Hills Distillery. So if you check this out, get some of this. I really enjoy it, and it's just a cool gimmick of it being Running Iron, Moving Iron. It's kind of funny thing so it's the unofficially the official whiskey of the moving iron podcast so check that out Rolling iron. <laughs> that's, right. that's right that's right running iron whiskey while you're moving your iron like that it's a pretty pretty good deal check that out go to dryhillsdistilleries.com or dryhillsdistillery-store.com to check that out so that'd be a be a good thing unofficial official whiskey of the moving iron podcast check that out all right Sean, if folks want to reach out to you, get more information about what you're doing, what's the best place for people to do that? Our website, hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. Uh, our Twitter page, at Faradex11, F-E-R-I-D-E-X-11. We also have a LinkedIn page 
We do put on some stuff from time to time to go over our work, our correlations, our statistics, our studies to see how we look at agriculture and how we make our price forecast might be a value to those watching your show. Right on, man. Sean, appreciate you coming on. Had a good podcast this one around. We had a lot of good information coming out of that. Any questions you have for Sean or anybody else that comes on the Moving Iron Podcast, send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com or hit me up on any of the socials. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC, LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast, Snapchat, and TikTok and move, or uh, YouTube, uh, all at Moving Iron Podcast. And you can always go to the Moving Iron LLC.com website. And you can find everything moving iron related there. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Sean Hackett. Let's move some iron, folks. Out.